Hello and welcome to episode 25 of the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. I am your host, Terrence M. Stanton. Thank you so much for joining us. This episode is being recorded on Monday, October 25th, 2021. Let us begin with remembering the 54-day Rosary Novena, the intentions on this, the 19th day. So we're to pray the joyful mysteries today. And our recommended Novena petition, as always, is for the consecration of Russia to the Immaculate Heart of Mary by the Pope and all the Catholic bishops of the world in the manner requested by Our Lady of Fatima, which will end these chastisements, prevent greater chastisements, and result in the conversion of Russia to the Catholic faith and a period of world peace. I unite this rosary with all the rosaries offered for the same intention. We talked yesterday about the magnificent theophany that took place on Thursday, June 13th, 1929 at Tui in Spain, when I finally got around to pronouncing Tui correctly. And I would like to continue to look at that from the book, The Whole Truth About Fatima, The Secret and the Church. And by the way, please feel free if you're on Twitter to follow us, um, Our Lady of Fatima podcast, the Handle is at Fatima Podcast, at Fatima Podcast on Twitter. So let's continue with this work at the bottom of page 475, The Spirit of Grace. In the vision of Tui, as in the iconography of the Middle Ages, one can see on the Father's breast an equally luminous dove. This representation of the Holy Spirit might surprise us. The symbolism seems very poor and means very little to our mentality. Besides, it risks causing a problem to the theologian. Is not the order of the Trinitarian processions reversed? The dove representing the Holy Spirit, which rests in the bosom of the Father, does not seem to proceed from the Son. Does not this image correspond more to Eastern Orthodox theology, which maintains that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father alone? rather than Catholic dogma, which clearly states that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. However, even before we look for possible speculative answers to the question, and whether the vision of Tui might suggest a reconciliation between the two traditions and what truth they contain, we can quickly be reassured. The apparition of Tui surely does not refer us back to medieval iconography, but quite simply, to the great Trinitarian theophanies of the Gospel. And as we shall see, the theophanies described in the Gospel, with astonishing precision, throw a great light on the essential message of Tui, the request for the consecration of Russia, and the promise of its conversion. No, this dove representing the Holy Spirit is not to be neglected as some sort of accessory element, placed there only to complete the Trinitarian symbolism artificially. As we will see, it too is rich in meaning. First of all, it unquestionably brings to mind the Trinitarian theophany of our Savior's baptism. And when Jesus had been baptized, he immediately came up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and coming upon him, and behold, a voice from the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew 3.16 Later, John the Baptist gave witness 
I beheld the Spirit descending as a dove from heaven, and he remained upon him. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the chosen one of God. John 1.32 St. Peter also said, You know how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. Acts 10.38 But in the vision of Tui, the dove representing the Holy Spirit descends and remains upon Jesus, crucified. Yet this is not a new representation. It only manifests and makes more explicit the lesson of the gospel. The Suffering Servant, Salvation of the Nations Exegetes have shown how the baptism of our Lord already prefigures his sorrowful passion. The symbolism is created by the descent into the waters of the Jordan, but especially by the voice from heaven, explicitly designated Jesus as the Messiah Savior, the Suffering Servant of the Book of Isaiah. The same words which were heard again during the Transfiguration, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, hear ye him. Likewise, place this second Trinitarian theophany in close relationship with the passion of Jesus. Moreover, St. Luke adds the detail that Moses and Elias, who were talking with Jesus, spoke of his death, which he was about to undergo at Jerusalem. See Luke 9.31 and Matthew 17.5. Thus, at his baptism, as well as his transfiguration, Jesus appears as the one designated by his Father as the Beloved Son, the suffering Messiah of Isaiah, on whom his spirit rests. Thus, the vision of Tui goes even beyond the theophanies of the Gospel and refers us back to the prophecies of Isaiah on the suffering servant on whom the Holy Spirit rests. This is even clearer if we consider that after the evocation of the sufferings of the Messiah, the prophecy sings of all his fruits of grace, the conversion and salvation of the nations. If he offers his life as a victim for sin, he will see a long-lived seed. He will prolong his days and Yahweh's good pleasure will be accomplished in him. Through his sufferings, my servant will justify the many. Isaiah 53.10 And here are those words which we do well to reread, having before our eyes the image of the vision of Tui, and its message for the conversion of Russia. Here are the prophetic words, such as St. Matthew applies them to Jesus. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare judgment to the Gentiles. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoking wick he will not quench, till he send forth judgment unto victory, and in his name will the Gentiles hope. Matthew twelve eighteen through 21 The bruised reed and the smoking wick, once referred to the empire of Egypt, which threatened Israel, do not these words remind us today of this poor nation, Russia, a schismatic nation which persecutes the church, but is still Christian? For God does not want to abandon it to perdition, but to make it, on the contrary, a vessel of mercy, by raising it up again and enkindling its flame once more, in the household of Roman unity, for the universal triumph of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. And what can we say about this other prophecy of Isaiah, which evokes the suffering Messiah, who has become king of the nations, but a gentle king, humble of heart, who shows favor to the poor and mercy to the guilty? These words which Jesus applied to himself in the synagogue of Nazareth, we can still apply to him. And as we see him nailed to the cross as in the Theophany of Tui, 
we can still hear him pronounce them today. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me. To bring good news to the poor he has sent me, to proclaim to the captives release, and sight to the blind, to set at liberty the oppressed, and to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of recompense. Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Luke 4, 18-21, and Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Yes, by the mercy of the Father, may the grace of Jesus Christ, Redeemer and King, descend soon upon this poor Russia and upon its Gulag archipelago. Of course, this book was written, I believe, in the mid-1980s, and the Soviet Union has dissolved since then, but the errors that came about from uh, the spread of communism are very apparent nowadays in virtually every country on earth. It continues by saying, May this grace convert its blind persecutors. May it free its captives and all the oppressed. May it bring back to the guidance of the one shepherd the millions of the poor still led astray in schism. The capital grace of the Son of God, the Savior. The dove representing the Holy Spirit resting upon Jesus nailed to the cross undoubtedly has another significance. Does it not evoke the whole mystery of the grace of Christ, our head, grace and mercy? The Father fills his crucified Son with the plenitude of grace, the plenitude of the Holy Spirit. This infinite treasure he receives through his divine sonship, but he also merits it through his redeeming sacrifice. He will pour out this stream of graces upon all nations through the effusion of the Holy Spirit. It is an adorable mystery, this divine plenitude, which overflows from the fruitful trinity and is communicated in wave after wave, even to the souls of pagans or rebels and persecutors to transform and convert them to lead them through the church and the mediation of the Immaculate Virgin to the Sacred Heart of the Son in the bosom of the Father. Let us cite only a few texts mentioning this plenitude or fullness, which will cause a good many others to come to mind. First of all, St. John in the prologue to his gospel, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, Yes, of his fullness we have all received, and grace for grace. John 1, 14 and 16. For he whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for God gives his spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. John three thirty four and 35. And St. Paul says, For if by the offense of the one that many died, much more has the grace of God and the gift and the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded unto the many. But where sin has abounded, grace has abounded yet more. Romans five fifteen and 20. Again, he is the head of his body, the church. For it has pleased God the Father that all his fullness should dwell in him, and that through him he should reconcile to himself all things, whether on the earth or in the heavens, making peace through the blood of his cross. Colossians 1, 18 through 20. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and in him you have received that fullness. Colossians 2 and 9. The Mystery of the Immaculate Heart of Mary. On the right side of the cross stood Our Lady with her Immaculate Heart in her hands. There stood near the cross of Jesus his mother. St. John tells us, John 19 and 25. 
That is where she appears in the Theophany of Tui, under the right arm of the cross. For the Blessed Virgin Mary is the first to receive in herself this plenitude of grace, which flows from the cross, gushing from the pierced heart of her well-beloved Son. She received this plenitude more than any other creature. There, under the cross of Jesus, where she is standing, the richness of her ineffable mercy shines forth the best. It is the mystery of an incomparable heart, for it belongs to the Immaculate Conception. It is the pierced heart of Our Lady of Sorrows, spouse of the Divine Crucified One, co-redemptrix and reparatrix of fallen humanity, the heart of the Mother of God and Mother of Men, mediatrix of grace and universal dispensatrix of mercy for all humanity redeemed on Calvary. Yes, the liturgy is a thousand times right to sing in honor of Mary, the pressing invitation of the Apostle to approach without fear the throne of the cross. Adiemos cum fiducia, ad thronum gratiae, ut misericordiam consequemar, et gratiam idvenimus in auxilio opportuno. Yes, let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Hebrews 4.16 The Mystery of an Incomparable Heart Fatima is the revelation of the heart of the Blessed Virgin Mary. Always, everywhere, there is question only of this most holy heart. Why this insistence, if not to induce us to contemplate Our Lady in each one of her mysteries under this symbol of the heart? For it is so expressive not only of sentiments, but of the person herself, in the entire spiritual portion. The Blessed Virgin Mary is a creature so pure, so sublime, that although she really does share in our nature, it is her heart that sums up and most exactly expresses her entire being. This means that she is first and foremost a soul, completely filled with the Holy Spirit, a brightly shining intelligence, full of unsearchable wisdom, a sovereign, indefatigable will, unceasingly working so that love inflame the whole world. Behold this admirable heart, to repeat the expression of St. John Eudes, ready to receive the plenitude of grace with which God wishes to fill it. The Mystery of the Immaculate Heart At Tui, the Blessed Virgin appears alone at the foot of the cross. Neither the Holy Women nor St. John appear there. This shows that Our Lady has a unique, incomparable place in the plan of salvation. She is the elect, the woman chosen among all others, the beloved and unique daughter of the Heavenly Father, predestined from all eternity to become the ever-Virgin Mother, the all-holy spouse and companion of the Son of God made man, the new Eve of this heavenly Adam. I came from the mouth of the Most High, the firstborn before all creatures. Like a vapor I covered the earth. I inhabited the heavens, and my throne was a column of clouds. Sirach 24.3 The scene of Calvary reveals to us the mystery of the Immaculate One in its very source. Under the right arm of the cross, bedewed with the divine blood, the Blessed Virgin Mary is the first and incomparable fruit of the redeeming sacrifice, to which she owes the singular privilege of her Immaculate Conception. Redeemed in advance by her Son in a very special way, sublimiori modo redempta, she has been preserved from the sinful solidarity and stain of the children of Adam. Like the Church, 
which she typifies, one can truthfully say that mystically she was born from the side of Christ pierced by the lance during his sleep of death, just as the first Eve was drawn by the Heavenly Father from Adam's rib as he slept in the Garden of Eden. This is the first ineffable mystery which filled St. Maximilian Kolbe with wonder. Predestined from before all ages, she is the immaculate conception of the Father and the Son. From the first instant of her creation, they filled her with the fullness of their spirit of love, of which she is the created image, the temple and living sanctuary, Ave Maria Gratia Plena. Flowing down from under the left arm of the cross is the crystal clear water forming the letters of the words grace and mercy. Does this not equally express, after the mystery of the grace of headship in Christ, his pierced heart is the fountain of living waters? John seven thirty seven through 39 the mystery of Mary, universal mediatrix of grace? If not the Immaculate One, full of grace, to an eminent degree, this fountain of crystal clear water gushing from the throne of God and the Lamb, this time from the right side, according to the letter of Ezekiel's prophecy, Vidi aquam agritientem aletara dextro, Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12, John 19, 34, Apocalypse 22, 1. In the vision of Tui, according to Sister Lucy, Our Lady appeared as she did at Fatima. Is it not remarkable that to describe the Immaculate One as she appeared at the Covadiria, Lucy used this comparison of crystal clear water, this water which is a symbol of the Holy Spirit everywhere in Scripture, illumined by the rays of the sun. There before us on a small home oak, we beheld a lady all dressed in white. She was more brilliant than the sun and radiated a light more clear and intense than a crystal glass filled with sparkling water when the rays of the burning sun shine through it. The Immaculate One is a pure water which has gushed from a single principle, the unique divine fountain of the Father and the Son. At the foot of the throne of the cross, she receives their superabundant plenitude of grace and mercy. The Mystery of the Pierced Heart It was Our Lady of Fatima with her immaculate heart, without a sword or roses, but with a crown of thorns and flames. We come to the second mystery, at the foot of the cross. Her immaculate heart is pierced by the same sorrows as those that overwhelm her beloved son. All the torments of his passion pierce her heart. The agony, the scourging, the crowning with thorns, outrages, crucifixion. She also is bent down under the weight of the sins of the world. Her heart is mortally wounded by so many crimes, outrages, blasphemies, so much ingratitude and indifference, which pierce her like sharp thorns. She is like the spouse in the canticle, whom the bridegroom implores to share in his redemptive passion. I hear my beloved knocking. Open to me, my sister, my beloved, my dove, my perfect one. My head is covered with dew and my cheeks with the drops of the night. This mystery of co-redemptive compassion is eloquently expressed at Tui. Nothing is said to us about the heart of Jesus. Only the heart of Mary is represented. But the seer insists that the Immaculate Heart did not appear according to the usual iconography, pierced with a sword and with roses, but with a crown of thorns and with flames. In other words, it appeared exactly as the heart of Jesus appeared to St. Margaret Mary. It suggests to us, with St. John Eudes, that the hearts of Jesus and Mary are but one heart, 
as is fitting for a bridegroom and a spouse, suffering together the same sorrowful passion for our salvation. From that moment, and right up until the end, your common love of the Heavenly Father unites you even more closely, and your unique love for us sinners, flowing from your sacred heart, O Jesus, in your immaculate heart, O Mary, procures for you a fruitfulness which makes you blessed, a mystery of a mother's heart. With her immaculate heart in her left hand, Our Lady offers to us this heart. She gives it to us because she is our mother, our true mother in heaven. Her heart is all on fire with the spirit of love, kindled with an infinite tenderness for her children, whom she brought forth in sorrow on Calvary, and an effective love, which wishes at any price to save them from the eternal fire of hell. The heart of Mary, the immaculate heart, the heart pierced with thorns, also reveals itself at Tui in this great scene from Calvary as the maternal heart of the new Eve. Mary is the mother of the new human race, conquered and redeemed by the blood of her son and her co-redemptive compassion. It is Jesus himself who expresses this universal maternity applied to each of his disciples, to each of the members of his body as in a solemn testament, speaking to his mother and his beloved disciple. Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. The best exegetes are in agreement with the fathers as well as the magisterium of the church in giving these words all the force of a spiritual, supernatural maternity, as really concrete as a natural motherhood, which is its foretype, and all the breath of a universal maternity, as vast by right as the whole human race, and extending, in fact, to the multitudes of Christ's faithful, who in the end are joined to his body and led by him to the glory of heaven. Yes, by her plenitude of grace, by her fiat at the moment of the Annunciation, when she became the mother of the whole Christ, and by her co-redemptive compassion as spouse, Our Lady merited to become the new Eve, the mother of all men. She really brings forth to the divine life all those who correspond to this grace of salvation. We find this concept of the spiritual maternity of Mary forcefully expressed in the message of Fatima. For example, in the important revelation received by Sister Lucy on May 29, 1930, where our Lord enumerates the blasphemies which most gravely offend the Immaculate Heart of His Mother, blasphemies against her divine maternity, refusing at the same time to recognize her as mother of men. The formula is rich in meaning and very enlightening. The Immaculate One, the Mother of God because she is the Mother of Christ, is also Mother of Men with respect to the rest of her children, as the Apocalypse says, because it is she who brings them forth in sorrow to the divine life. Apocalypse twelve seven. It must also be stressed that in the apparition of December 10, 1925, at Panavedra, the child Jesus, speaking of the Blessed Virgin to Lucy, does not say, My mother, but your most holy mother. Have compassion on the heart of your most holy mother, covered with thorns, with which ungrateful men pierce her at every moment. The writings of Sister Lucy demonstrate how thoroughly saturated she is with this consoling and beautiful thought. Such expressions as these are constantly found under her pen. Our tender mother in heaven, the immaculate heart of Mary, our most tender mother, the immaculate heart of our most holy mother. These expressions mean that Mary is our heavenly mother, to whom we owe our whole life in the supernatural order, because it is through her and never without her that our Father in heaven, 
who is the source of supernatural life and Jesus, who merited it for us, will to dispense it to us. Let us understand well, it is not merely an affection, a moral bond, which would cause the Blessed Virgin to love us as a mother and to adopt us as her children. No, it is something different, an ontological bond, a relation of origin, which unites us to her. In meriting to become the mother of God, the Immaculate Virgin also merited to become our mother. Here are the very words of St. Pius X, whose doctrine once again coincides with the message of Fatima. Is not Mary the mother of God? Thus she is also our mother. In the chaste womb of the Virgin, where Jesus took on mortal flesh, he also assumed a spiritual body, formed of all those who were to believe in him. Thus, as she carried Jesus in her womb, it must be said that Mary also carried all those whose lives were included in the life of the Savior. Thus, all of us, who being united to Christ are, as the Apostle says, the members of his body issued from his flesh and his bones, have come forth from the womb of the mother like a body attached to its head. If, then, the Blessed Virgin is at the same time mother of God and mother of men, Dei Simul, Atqua Hominum Parens Est, who can doubt that she employs all her power interceding with her son, head of the body of the church, that he poured out over us who are his members the gifts of his grace, especially the grace of knowing and living by him. Very beautiful words. So I wanted to continue to touch on the theophany that took place at Tui, the deeply scriptural connections in regards to grace and mercy and the maternity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. That's such a key fact that not only is she the mother of our Lord Jesus Christ in the spiritual realm, she is the mother of us all. The victory will come through Our Lady of Fatima. The victory will come through the rosary. The victory will come when Russia is properly consecrated to her perfect and sweet immaculate heart by the Pope and all the Catholic bishops of the world. That's the most important thing in the world right now. A consecration and depending on who you talk to, um, looking at previous consecrations of the world or of uh, the Pope individually of Russia, you know, Pius Twelfth or John Paul II, it might take five minutes, possibly. It seems like something, and it is something, that is so simple, but it will make such a huge difference in the world, a colossal difference in the world. We are nearing the end of a very wicked age in human history. Human life is disrespected. Marriage is disrespected. Even what a man is and what a woman is, is called into question. Reality can be changed by a vote or by personal opinion or preference. That's living not according to reality. That's living to 
in accordance with the state of unreality. As the Catholic apologist Jesse Romero said when he was helping out, assisting a priest praying during an exorcism, a, a demon associated with Los Angeles identified himself as the demon of unreality. Well, it seems like there are a lot of demons pertaining to unreality who are running rampant throughout the world right now. Our Lady of Fatima is going to crush all of them. But we have to cooperate. We have to be obedient sons and daughters. We do our part by praying the rosary every day, by praying the rosary with others, by making the five first Saturdays devotion, by being people of faith, hope, charity, being as kind as possible, especially when it looks like the world all around us is imploding. I implore my students to be prayerful, to be positive, and to be productive. We're going through a dark night right now, but sunrise is coming very soon. And when the consecration takes place properly, it's going to be a beautiful new day in the world, a beautiful Marian era of peace and prosperity. Let's honor Our Lady of Fatima in conclusion. In nomine Patris et Fili et Spiritus Sancti, Amen. Ave Maria, gratia plena, Dominus tecum, benedicta tu in mulieribus, et benedictus fructus ventris tui, Jesus. Sancta Maria, Mater Dei, ora pro nobis peccatoribus, nunc et in ora mortis nostrae. Amen. Virgo potens, ora pro nobis. Sancti Joseph, terra daimonem, ora pro nobis. In nomine Patris, et Fili, et Spiritus Sancti. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to the Our Lady of Fatima podcast. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. If everyone who is listening to this could share it with even two people, and then they shared it with two people, uh, we would grow this podcast exponentially. Let's love Jesus, let's love the Blessed Mother, and let's love St. Joseph. Goodbye, and God love you.